Hi there, everyone. Welcome to our webinar today. My name is Sarah from MyOSH, um, the second webinar this week. Um, so thank you for joining us. Um, as with all webinars, it will be recorded and a podcast and a video will be shared later today. Um, the topic today is navigating H&S in complex times. It's going to be presented by the team at GreenCap. Um, GreenCap have, have over 250 professional, technical and engineering staff. Um, they offer world-class delivery of innovative health and safety solutions to market-leading clients in a wide range of industries across both private and public sectors. As part of WSP, a tier one multidisciplinary consulting firm, GreenCap has the strength to partner with clients on large projects where Chris risk is critical to commercial viability. Now, just before I introduce the um, three presenters, I'll just let you know there's a Q&A panel at the bottom. Please pop questions in there. If you want to chat, please use the chat panel to chat to either the panelists or to everyone if you want to add any feedback. Um, so our speakers today are, <clears throat> first up, Phoebe Gain. She's going to be the moderator. She's a national lead practice lead for health and safety at GreenCap, leading a team of 50 health and safety professionals occupational hygienists, property risk consultants, and scientists. Dr. Michael Taylor <clears throat> is the practice manager for occupational hygiene and indoor environmental quality at GreenCap with an academic background in public and environmental health, microbial ecology and mycology. And Renee Dawson is the GreenCap practice manager for the health and safety team with 20 years experience in health and safety across a range of industries and settings. So with all that, over to you, Phoebe. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Sarah, and welcome everybody to today's webinar. Um, I'd like to start with an acknowledgement to country. GreenCap acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. As per uh, Sarah's introduction, I'm very happy to be joined by my colleagues, Renee and Michael, today as we talk through complexity in health and safety settings. So what we're gonna start off with is just a bit of a reflective piece on why are we talking about this today? Um, and then we're gonna look at a framework, um, the Kinevin framework um, as a means to apply some structure and rigor to navigating uh, situations um, in the health and safety context. And then we'll bring that to life as we go through with a few case studies. Um, as Sarah mentioned, any questions you have, please put those in the Q&A channel and um, we'll come to those at the end as we go to an open discussion. Um, and um, we'll, if you have any chat, um, please put that in that chat channel as well. Okay, so let's kick off and have a little think about why are we doing this today? Renee, can you give us a bit of context about this particular topic? Yeah, sure. No, thanks, Phoebe. So during the past three years, many of us have had to navigate situations that feel complex and unclear, and they have been. For myself, the COVID pandemic introduced a period of demand for my colleagues, my team and our clients. We found ourselves in an environment where we were suddenly feeling our way through an unpredicted and unplanned shift as a change to, um, as well as a change to our way of life and, and our worlds. Yeah, Someone wise, oh, sorry. <laughs> Some wise reflected that from a work perspective, the pandemic appeared to create two distinct clusters of people. One group faced a reality of demand for services and support and advice during a time where advice and requirements were constantly changing. 
The other were confronted with the threat of loss of employment or reduced income, be it through reduction in hours or a need to close or wind down their business. I'm sure other categories will come to mind for you, but this reflection and categorisation resonated with me based on what I was witnessing at the time. So um, as a leader of a health and safety team, I saw a heightened demand for their time and expertise. What I also observed was the impact on the silent hardships on them. The duration of lockdowns, stay-at-home orders, being separated from family and loved ones who were interstate or overseas, and the reality of juggling work and personal lives. Given the steady stream of work and support that we were providing to our clients, I wanted to prevent any risk of burnout for my team. I wanted to ensure that I, as, as well as my team, were stepping through this time in a way that was constructive and sustainable. When I look back, I learned that up until this point in my professional life, I had naively perceived the world to be predictable. My mindset and mode of operation was that I thought I knew what was around the corner and, and hence what was needed to be done to lead and navigate myself and my team towards a desired destination, what actions were required to meet the target and, and outcome I was and, and my team were, were aspiring and working hard to achieve. Yeah, gosh, I don't think you're alone there, Renee. It was a particularly challenging period, and I think we see a, a change permanently in the way things are done now. Um, so that being said, there must be some ways to, to map that complexity in a way that helps make sense of it all and step through it. Yes, there is. Um, so during the pandemic, I was introduced to a very useful decision-making tool called the Kinevin Framework, a framework based on complexity leadership theory. Kinevin consists of five domains, a framework extremely valuable. It helped me make sense of the situation at hand and make better decisions. I also improved how I interacted and communicated with the team to get a true sense of what was happening on the ground and what was needed to respond or support. I'm still learning to uh, apply the Kinevin framework. I have found it especially useful when navigating new or challenging scenarios from a health and safety leadership perspective. Okay, well, give us a bit more context about what does what do these domains look like? What is this? Sure. Uh, Kinevin framework helps leaders make better decisions when confronted with complex challenges. Overall, it seeks to enable one to understand and identify the, the nature of the issue that has or is arising how to meaningfully plan and approach the needs of the situation and be flexible and open to what is and what can be achieved. So it allows us to understand what is known as well as unknown about the issue, um, how to adjust one's decision-making and response to suit the needs of the situation. By seeing things from this new perspective, be it a complex risk scenario, an incident, or a potential opportunity, we can gather and use insights and learnings from those within our organisation, such as frontline team members, to rapidly understand and suitably respond. Okay, so it's got several domains here. Can, can we have a bit of a closer look at each of these areas and, and how, they, how they work? Yeah, so I'll start with the first two, and, and they include the simple and complicated. 
Now, these contexts assume an ordered or predictable world where cause and effect relationships are obvious, where the right answers can be determined based on facts. The next include complex and chaotic. These contexts are unordered. There is no apparent relationship between cause and effect. The way forward is based on detecting emerging patterns. So Phoebe, in summary, the ordered world is managed by facts versus the unordered world where you are looking to identify and manage patterns. Okay. There is a fifth domain, disorder, and that applies when it is unclear which of the other four apply. So the intent of this tool is to help you to sense and identify what context you are in. Once you have a sense of where you are, you can then better respond to suit the needs of the situation instead of relying on your default mode of response or management style. Well, that sounds like a pretty sensible way of categorising it and a pretty powerful tool. But um, for me personally, and I'm sure for the audience, it would be great to look at this in, in a real life setting. So can we go through each of these in a bit more detail and, and maybe look at how they're applied in real life? So let's start with a simple context known as the domain of best practice. Simple contexts are defined by stability and a clear cause and effect relationship. They are easily noticeable and identifiable to many. Typically, the right answer is clear and undisputed. This is the realm of known knowns. When accurately identified, simple contexts require straightforward management and monitoring. Here as leaders, we sense and assess the facts of the situation, we categorise them and then respond based on established or known practice. So you must see quite a broad range of work situations that in occupational safety that, that would fall neatly into this, into this domain. Um, let's step through a, a simple situation. Yes, I do. And an example that comes to mind is a program of health and safety inspections that we performed for a large government agency. There were 80 sites that needed to be inspected by a very clear timeline. These sites were located across the state. Our client had to meet internal departmental requirements and timelines, and we needed to support them with that. So to set ourselves up for success, we established a project team, a project manager, a schedule, a clear audit process, a defined audit tool and a training program for our auditors. We also set up regular meetings, tracking reports and communication channels with our client's project team plus our own. And we also applied the required quality control measures. We had a great relationship with our, and, and our planned approach was working well. We were delivering the required audits as per the agreed timeline and methodology. Things were going well until the client's project manager and team suddenly changed twice. With, um, with each change came a new point of contact and a change to our clients and hence the program requirements midway through the, the peak of our delivery. Um, see, until this occurred, we were in the simple domain. Our requirements were clear. We successfully applied a tried and tested approach. We were meeting our clients' needs. 
But now I understand why the simple domain lies right next to chaos, because when our client's project manager and their requirements change at least twice, chaos is where we started to head. So to respond appropriately, we acted to establish order. So we continued with our core auditing activities, yet we dialed up the project management support and the communications. We had to sense and follow where stability was and where it was not present. And we had to respond to that accordingly. So that was not easy. However, it, it is a good example of, of how quickly a tipping point can emerge and a change in context occur. Yeah, and I can really see in this example how having that really clear framework parameters in place at the beginning meant that when anything started to look a bit wobbly, you could pull it back um, to make sure you were really keeping it in that in that simple space. Okay, so that's simple. That's pretty clear cut. And, and, and I think a lot of people will relate to that as sort of run of the mill situations. Let's stay on the ordered side um, and, and talk about complicated now. What, what, what does this look like? Okay, so the complicated context, which is also known as the domain of experts. Complicated context can hold multiple right answers. So whilst there is also a clear cause and effect relationship, not everybody can see it. This is the realm of known unknowns. And often there is more than one right answer will, will exist. So in this context, leaders sense the facts of the situation, they analyse them and then respond. Yeah, and here I can see where, um, you know, that known unknown, you know, that point around needing to engage experts who might be those ones who have that in their toolkit of, of what those knowns should be. Um, okay, let's look at this in a real situation. Michael, um, you've been sitting there smiling far too long. We've picked on you. Um, can you give us a, a bit of an example of um, a case study where the complicated domain was true? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, a really good example of a, of a case study in that domain would be Gladstone drug lab investigations. Um, they seem like they're chaotic on the outside, but in a lot of ways, they're really not. In terms of unknown knowns, um, for the most part, we know what we're there to look for. Um, there are prescriptive guidelines, which means when you're doing an investigation, you have an idea of what you should be investigating, the levels of contamination, which are acceptable or not. And the complications around those sites are primarily human factors. They're people's behaviours, they're things that they will have done, you know, to produce that contamination. And so we do broadly know what we're looking for, even if we're not entirely sure what the levels might be or what we're going to see. Um, and in a lot of ways, those sites are quite controlled. They're unlikely to change um, if, you know, the police have attended and, and the, you know, the exam vacant they'll be relatively static in their requirements which means when we turn up to do an investigation we have a fairly good idea of what we're going to see yeah um actually Mike, uh, michael your microphone's just gone a bit fuzzy if you just make sure you, you see it. sit a little yeah. closer there you go that's perfect yeah um okay so so talk talk us through um what what you had to do in this particular situation sure so uh, in terms of this one, um, it's a fairly typical um, clan lab investigation. 
Um, there was uh, a public health notice on the property. It had been previously confirmed to have a clan lab present. It was a domestic residence. It was currently occupied. There was a public health notice on the property, which meant um, we needed to go in, do an investigation and provide, provide remedial advice uh, before that property could be sold or it was declared fit for habitation again. Um, we, we had an understanding uh, of what we were moving into in terms of risk. So we had police, locksmith, and the local council in attendance. And so although we weren't entirely sure what we would see, we knew what we were there to confirm. We had a pretty good understanding of what the problem was. Uh, we had a fairly good understanding of what the hazards were. Um, and as you can see, the, the actual site in its own right, when we, when we moved through it, um, although it looked pretty chaotic, uh, we knew what we were looking at and what we were there for. Um, what we did find when we did the investigation um, was the sorts of things that you would expect, um, but also some hidden discoveries were made. So applying that framework, um, in this case, using that sense, analyze and respond um, that fit within the complicated domain, we did collect a range of um, samples from structural materials to determine what level of contamination were present. They were analyzed to determine what kinds of contamination was around. Definitely confirmed that it was high levels of methamphetamine. It was about 500 times greater than the guideline levels. And then, in terms of responding to that, um, we provided remedial advice. But what we didn't expect was if you have a look inside that wall cavity, and the next photo hopefully will show it, and that's where a hidden drug lab was. That's actually an automotive jack holding up the framework of the building. So, ultimately, all that testing would determine that not only was the building not remedial. From a remediable from a contamination perspective, it was also not sound from an engineering perspective. So from an outcomes perspective, it was decided that the structure was condemnable. So we moved through that framework, we understood what we were seeing, and the, the end result was relatively defined. We knew where it was headed, and um, that was a fairly conclusive decision that was made at the, at the conclusion of that um, investigation. And I suppose from those sort of things, you can add to your list of what some of the unknown knowns might be, because in terms of the, <laughs> the structural integrity of a, of a building is probably not at the top of your list when you're thinking about clandestine drug stuff. But um, yeah, goodness, that's a, that's a really good one. Thank you, Michael. Um, OK, so if we move through to um, the unordered side of um, the framework, Renee, um, can we move and talk to the complex um, scenario, please? Yes, so the domain, we'll start with the, the complex domain. So the domain of emergence is what it's known as. And in this context, you can't dig out the right answers. You can only understand why things happen in retrospect. So it's the realm of unknown unknowns. This is much of where contemporary business has shifted. You may even find yourself here right now. Patterns can emerge if leaders undertake safe-to-fail experiments. So instead of trying to map out a, a course of action, leaders must patiently allow the path forward to reveal itself. So that means you need to first probe, then sense, and then respond. And in this domain, we need to adopt a more experimental style of management and be tolerant of failure experimenting with your approach and, and I think in that domain like that that feedback loop between seeing what sensing and, and how how you are adjusting your response accordingly would be critical and, and coming into that um, experimental style um, okay so Michael give us an example of a situation which would fit into this space because I'm sure you've seen a few 
And this year has been um, one where we've had to engage with a, a particularly large amount um, of, of cases within that complex domain. Um, so given the amount of flooding that has occurred across Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria since sort of May, April this year, um, we've seen a, a particularly high uptick in the amount of water damage and mould related works. Um, a lot of the time those investigations are routine, but in this instance there was a huge amount of varied sites with a range of different hazards. So not just environmental because roads may have been blocked or completely damaged, but also chemical hazards from uh, waters interacting with things like septic tanks, sheds, chemical stores, those kinds of things. So to give a little bit of context, um, over the last, you know, since April, uh, a little over 200,000 claims for flood related damage have been made. An approximate cost is sort of five and a half billion dollars and about 2.8 billion of that has been settled. So there's still an enormous amount of, of ongoing works. Oh, and I'll just a little bit of a, a, an image there of what the um, millimetres of rainfall is. Uh, and just keep in mind that one mill of rainfall equals one litre per square metre. So for some of those sites where it's got 3,000 mills, that's the amount of water per square metre um, that's sitting there. So well, well, well and truly in that flood kind of range. Yeah, it's pretty stark when you see it like that. Um, I mean, I know we've all been following the news in those regards, but seeing those numbers, 5.45 billion, that's, that, um, and this impact here on the East Coast is really, really significant. Yeah. Um, so, as I said, a lot of mould and moisture investigations are relatively routine. It'll be a relatively restricted uh, bit of water damage, so a burst pipe or something like that. And so we understand what we're looking for, how much water may have gone through the house, those kinds of things. Flood impacts don't react that way. They're not the same. They're exponentially greater. Um, the impacts tend to worsen rapidly over time because there's such huge amounts of trapped moisture. And so quickly attending to them is, is absolutely key. Many of the impacted sites, based upon the fact that they weren't domestic, there were fast moving goods or sensitive materials that require relatively, once again, rapid attendance in order to provide business continuity. There were things like you know, banks and parcel handling facilities and those kinds of areas where um, not only were the materials present high sensitivity, but they were also degradable very quickly. It left us with a situation where we had a whole lot of unknown unknowns this time. We weren't actually sure how big the impacts would be. We weren't sure what was going to still remain on site, what the access was going to be like, if they were going to be blocked up, um, if we were even going to be able to get there in some instances, um, because some of the some of the areas we had to move to were still looking like they're still partially underwater. Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose so how are you how did you apply the framework in, in this scenario? Well given that we 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 had a rough idea what we were you know what we were looking at, but we weren't really entirely sure. We really need to start with that probe um, at the outset. We needed to determine some of the real fundamentals. If it was safe to access the site, could we get there? Um, what additional hazards would we not normally see within a, a mold or water remediation job? So that could be electrical, electrical, structural, it could be chemical, it could be wildlife related, and certainly there was a whole lot of snakes and things around. And we needed to gather insights from some of the other local facility man managers, people who were already on the ground to determine what the next steps were. Um, in terms of the actual investigation, that's when we kind of moved into that sensing um, side of the, of, of, of the tools that we had. Site attendance was obviously pretty complicated, but we needed to rely upon the observations we were making, categorizing the damage as best as possible, and then moving towards the more conventional methods that we use, things like 
collecting mold samples, looking for moisture, those kinds of things. We couldn't start with that because it, there was going to be much wider problems present than simply a little bit of water. And then in terms of responding, uh, then we needed to go through a sort of a triage of identifying the high value, high sensitivity items that needed to be dealt with immediately, providing make safe advice so that when someone actually goes in to carry out the works, we're confident that they are not putting themselves at an additional risk and then provide the remedial advice that we normally do it would around removing items, uh, drying things out, those kinds of things, and then arrange for further attendance because we were pretty confident that if we started pulling things apart, there would be a, additional complexities that we, we weren't able to see inside walls, inside service ducts and vents and that kind of thing. So looking back at that um, that complex uh, the scenario and that experimental style of management, um, in this context, can you give an example where you were trying something and you were you you sensed and you were responding and then something wasn't working, so you'd have to adjust? What would what does that look like for you? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, quite frequently when you look at a water damage site, you'll say remove all these materials; they can't be saved. Um, this can be dry out the concrete slab and the framework and then put it back together. And so we provided that advice, but for some of them, people were drying and drying and drying and trying to dry out this concrete slab and nothing nothing was working. And we had to pivot. We realized that the amount of moisture in the ground, the additional you know, water around site meant that it was going to be impossible to effectively dry the massive volume of concrete slab, but also the surrounding waters. We really needed to change our advice from, okay, we're going to have to do some additional removal, get more airflow in there, some things that we thought we could store on site that's purely not going to work. And we really had to go through an iterative process of this was unexpected, but what can we do to mitigate that? It was it was a very much unknown, unknown circumstance. Yeah, lots of thinking and beat, I imagine. <laughs> All right, so let's talk to the final area, um, Renee, um, the chaotic, which sounds the most confusing of all of them for me <laughs> yes so yeah i guess um yes it is our fourth and, and final the chaotic so the it's it's the domain of, of rapid response so when you hear searching for the right answer is is pointless as the relationship between cause and effect is impossible to determine there's no manageable pattern only turbulence so an example might be a large-scale industrial emergency. So when you find yourself here, your job is to first act to establish order, then sense where stability is present and where it is not. And then you respond by shifting the situation from chaos to the complexity domain. As when you're in the complex domain, patterns can then emerge you can gather learnings and insights to prevent future in incidents, crises, or even identify new opportunities. Okay, so I suppose it's, yes, it's understanding it so you can start moving it out of that chaotic space. Yep. I, I think we can probably all think of a chaotic situation that's happened in the recent past. Um, maybe that's one we wanna look at and dive into. Um, Michael, do you wanna give us some more info there? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, COVID and the entire pandemic period was a hugely chaotic period. It was very much like being fired out of a cannon. It wasn't a, do I have a choice of being fired out of this cannon? It was, I, I guess we have to work out where we're going to land. Um, we were talking about the true infectious potential. So we, we were, this is, if you cast your mind all the way back to March 2020, 
um, where things had just started to pick up. There was understanding that this was going on. It wasn't entirely clear how big of a problem this was going to be, what the mortality and morbidity was like, how infectious it was, how rapidly these infections were increasing. And we were starting to get advice from a range of different areas, but it was relatively conflicting. Government advice wasn't necessarily being matched up with scientific observations because they were so fresh. The social effects were really just starting to be felt. Lockdowns were just beginning to happen, and there was this sort of hyper state of fear. So we we are right on the other side of it now, but we were right there at the beginning where the amount of chaos around us, the unknown unknowns were so wild um, that we really couldn't predict anything. Um, what we did find was that pretty rapidly some of those key pieces of infrastructure, key providers of services um, started to approach us and say, we, we desperately need help. We, we, need, we need to keep doing what we do. We cannot stop, but we don't know how to do it. So we were approached by a supplier of medical gas to hospitals. Um, they provide oxygen cylinders that need to be used at some um, collected, refilled, and then returned back to the hospital. Now, oxygen supply at that point was critical and becoming more critical because we were dealing with a respiratory illness, and it was pretty key to patient outcomes. The work couldn't stop. They needed that oxygen to survive, and the providers needed to give it to them. But the work is also needed to be protected from a rapidly changing just threat. They didn't know what they were going into. They knew they needed to do the work, but they didn't need to put themselves at risk but they didn't know what, how to manage that risk. And to make it a little bit more complicated, we were told we can't use disinfectants on the cylinders. So that's an ideal photo. That's how a cylinder normally looks. Um, if you look at the next photo, this is what often was presented back to them. Obviously quite clinically contaminated materials. They weren't simple. They were gonna have fluids and other things on them. And we were told, sorry, you can't wipe that clean with, with a disinfectant um, because it will contaminate the cylinder and put the end user at risk. Explosive risks occur when you mix oxygen with, with oxidizing things, um, all the chemicals. And so, it yeah, left us with a pretty challenging set of things where we had to kind of thread this possibility of. Um, we really needed to fall back on a framework where we knew we needed to act, something had to happen, and we weren't, we didn't have the luxury of being able to take a heap of samples, do a heap of reading. We needed to provide some kind of framework in which the work could get done. So we immediately started looking at, okay, what, what can we at least theorise exists? And we began to categorise the activities that had to happen on site in terms of collecting those cylinders, getting them back to the depot. And then we started to look at proposing controls around them. So we kind of came up with a, a graded exposure risk chart, looking at where in the hospital the workers were, what materials they needed to interact with, the tasks they had to carry out, and then started looking at what was the appropriate protective equipment they could wear doing that. If someone's doing a manual handling task, you can't want them in the great big heavy respirator and Tyvex and gloves and everything because it'll actually make them more prone to tripping and falling. And yeah. we really needed to look at what we had available and looking at what was the best, most appropriate controls to apply. We did actually come up with a non-residue forming chemical treatment for the cylinders, which they were able to apply at site. That point of collection. And then that workforce that actually had to do the work was trained on some basic infectious disease principles that applied both in the hospital, in the vehicles they were using, at the depot, um, because these people were not clinically trained. They didn't have that background at that point. Infectious diseases and transmission risks were, were not really part of everyone's conversation. We gave them the tools to then be able to just act. The sets, you know, component came in next. Health in that workforce was monitored to make sure that 
you know, they were only healthy, but they, they weren't picking up additional infections. And a feedback process was implemented where the workers could talk not just to the hospital, but also to their manager to make sure that the controls applied were appropriate. It wasn't making their work harder. They were actually able to do it. And best of all, hopefully working so that when we came to the respond process, it was really an iterative sort of feedback loop where the controls could be redesigned based upon the limitations and the change in circumstances that we were actually sending outside. And that's a fascinating example to, to look back at the beginning of the pandemic. And one question I'd ask is, now we know what we know about COVID-19, and you look back at how that response was done at the time, would there have been anything significant that you would have changed about the way we approach that project had it happened now? Now we know about the airborne issues and, mm. and, and have a bit more data under our belts. Um. Probably not. I think a lot of the controls that we proposed really would still fit. There's probably a few activities, additional activities that people did uh, involving cleaning down insides of vehicles and that kind of thing that maybe we could have focused on a little bit less. But a lot of the other controls actually still applied. They, they still worked. They provided the same degree of safety that we, we would have put in place anyway. It probably would have been a bit less... Um, you know, fearful, there probably would have been not so many unknowns of we expect this will work, but we can't actually tell you. But a lot of those controls, I think, would, would still likely be appropriate, even given what we know now. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. What, I, what I love about that example is I think, Michael, it, it does also highlight how that chaos and innovation mm. can be managed in, in parallel, um, which is, I guess, positive out of, out of some of that. Um, the unknown that you're dealing with yeah yeah absolutely that innovation piece is, is really key isn't it yeah because i think it spurred on a few other um initiatives and then learnings that were then able to support others as well so yeah interesting yeah. Yeah. thank you so much both of you um that brings us to the end of the presentation side of today's webinar um today we've touched on that value of applying that decision making tool in a health and safety leadership perspective and looked at how some of those domains apply in real life and how you can navigate those scenarios. I hope you found the case studies valuable and the description of the framework valuable. Um, we will now just open it up to general Q&A um, for any questions that you may have related to the framework or some of the case studies. Um, so as I said at the beginning, please feel free to put those in the Q&A and we'll step through them as they come through. Um, We've got a first one here, um, which is a, which was a comment more than a Q&A, but um, I'll, I'll read this one out from, a bit from Bill. Um, uh, the, the question reads, uh, interesting example, Michael. I went through something similar in the Brisbane 2011 floods uh, where I worked at an engineering consultancy. Pumps were used to pump the basement out and dump the water into the street. But when I was able to get to site, I found that because the floor drains were not sealed up, all they were doing was pumping a bit of the Brisbane water up through the drains and back out of the street to go into the river. So that really, that's, yeah, exactly. Um, but I think the quantities of water were crazy. And, and, and as to your point, Michael, about that, that enormous volume of water and trying to navigate that. Oh, yeah, no, it really, it's, a, it's an interesting one in a lot of ways. I mean, the way things interact with in, the environments interact with building is an interesting one and floods have been interesting because a lot of it just falls back on some fundamental emergency management principles which really cross you know all of all of the boundaries that the three of us are talking about today where in a lot of ways um 
you, you put these things in place, um, but a lot of the time you are essentially giving people permission to do what they know they really need to do. But if you haven't put it in a framework, if you can't rely upon the fact that people know what they're doing and you can say, okay, well, I actually know what this person is doing at this point and this person and this person and this person, it's impossible to redirect. If everyone is acting completely chaotically, it's, it's very difficult to get any kind of structure, whereas at least if people are acting within the boundaries of what they know is in a plan, you're able to redirect people. And flooding is a, was, was one where in a lot of cases where people didn't have an emergency management plan, even if they were, those, those that did, even if it wasn't necessarily doing exactly what was going to solve the problem, it was actually doing a lot more than a chaotic approach of exactly like that. We'll just pump the water out and hope for the best. You know, where's it going? It's actually just going straight back into the building. Not necessarily helping, um, but, you know, at least then if you know where it's going, going you can redirect it. You've got a plan, there are pumps present. You've actually got some tools that you can work with now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, another another question, but a comment from Daniel. Um, uh, thanks for your kind words, um, Daniel. Um, and, and and I agree. Um, it, Daniel made a comment about using the case studies to understand the application of the framework, and that's so true because sometimes these frameworks seem very th theoretical and and they sound great, but it, it's hard to put them into. Well, how does that resonate with what I'm doing? So I would definitely encourage all members of our audience today to to maybe take take that framework and look at look back at some examples of situations you have to navigate in your roles and, and what would that apply and, and apply your what you did versus the framework and, and see if there's any learnings or, or um, reflection there. Um, I just want to add um, if there while we wait for any more questions or comments um, that I put a link in here to a page on our academy which has got all of Green Cap's previous webinars and there's a lot of fantastic content there about building compliance and COVID etc so check that out please every every webinar has a podcast and a webinar so they're easy to share on um, so we don't have a lot of any more questions um, Phoebe yeah. is there anything else you your team wants to say um, no, nothing for me. I'm, um, I'm grateful for everybody attending today and listening to the webinar. Um, Renee, Michael, I don't know whether you had any closing remarks you wanted to add. No, just thank you. I think it was a, just a lot of fun just to be able to, um, you know, have the opportunity to share. And I think, you know, uh, just grateful for the, the time here today. So thank you. Okay, yes, I will share those slides. They'll be um, embedded on the page that we send later today. So thank you everyone for joining us and um, all the webinars this year. Um, and thank you for Renee and Michael and Phoebe. That was great. Thanks guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye.